3, Chapter 12 of The Mermaid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mermaid by Lily Duggle. Chapter 12. To Call a Spirit from the Vasty Deep. It was when the first wildflowers of the year had passed away, and the scarlet columbine and meadow rue waved lightly in the sunny glades of the woods, and all the world was green, the new and perfect green of June, that one afternoon Caius, at his father's door, met a visitor who was most rarely seen there. It was Farmer Day. He accosted Caius, perhaps a little sheepishly, but with an obvious desire to be civil, for he had a favor to ask which he evidently considered of greater magnitude than Caius did when he heard what it was. Day's wife was ill. The doctor of the locality had said more than once that she would not live many days, but she had gone on living some time, it appeared, since this had been first said. Day did not now call upon Caius as a medical man. His wife had taken a fancy to see him because of his remembered efforts to save her child. Day said apologetically that it was a woman's whim, but he would be obliged if Caius, at his convenience, would call upon her. It spoke much for the long peculiarity and dreariness of Day's domestic life that he evidently believed that this would be a disagreeable thing for Caius to do. Day went on to the village. Caius strolled off through the warm woods and across the hot cliffs to make this visit. The woman was not in bed. She was dying of consumption. The fever was flickering in her high-boned cheeks when she opened the door of the desolate farmhouse. She wore a brown calico gown. Her abundant black hair was not yet streaked with gray. Caius could not see that she looked much older than she had done upon the evening, years ago, when he had first had reason to observe her closely. He remembered what Josephine had told him, that time had stood still with her since that night. It seemed true in more senses than one. A light of satisfaction showed itself in her dark face when, after a moment's inspection, she realized who he was. Come in, she said briefly. Caius went in, and had reason to regret, as well as on his own account as on hers, that she shut the door. To be out in the summer would have been longer life for her, and to have the summer shut out made him realize forcibly that he was alone in the desolate house with a woman whose madness gave her a weird seeming, which was almost equivalent to ghostliness. When one enters a house from which the public has long been excluded, and which is the abode of a person of deranged mind, it is perhaps natural to expect, although unconsciously, that the interior arrangements should be very strange. Instead of this, the house, gloomy and sparsely furnished as it was, was clean and in order. It lacked everything to make it pleasant, air, sunshine, and any cheerful token of comfort, but it was only in this dreary negation that it failed. There was no positive fault to be found, even with the atmosphere of the kitchen and bare lobby, through which he was conducted, and he discovered, to his surprise, that he was to be entertained in a small parlor, which had a round polished center table, on which lay the usual store of such things as are seen in such parlors all over the world, a Bible, a couple of albums, a woolen mat, and an ornament under a glass case. Caius sat down, holding his hat in his hand, with an odd feeling that he was acting a part in behaving as if the circumstances were at all ordinary. The woman also sat down, but not as if for ease. She drew one of the big cheap albums toward her, and began vigorously searching in it from the beginning, as if it were a book of strange characters in which she wished to find a particular passage. She fixed her eyes upon each small cheap photograph in turn, as if trying hard to remember who it represented, 
and whether it was or was not the one she wanted. Caius looked on amazed. At length, about the middle of the book, she came to a portrait at which she stopped, and with a look of cunning took out another which was hidden under it, and thrust it at Caius. "'It's for you,' she said. "'It's mine, and I'm going to die, and it's you I'll give it to.' She looked and spoke as if the proffered gift was a thing more precious than the rarest gem. Caius took it, and saw that it was a picture of a baby girl, about three years old. He had not the slightest doubt who the child was. He stood by the window and examined it long and eagerly. The sun, unaided by the deceptive shading of the more skilled photographer, had imprinted the little face clearly. Caius saw the curls, and the big sad eyes with their long lashes, and all the baby features and limbs, his memory aiding to make the portrait perfect. His eager look was for the purpose of discovering whether or not his imagination had played him false. But it was true what he thought. The little one was like Josephine. I shall be glad to have it, he said, very glad. I had it taken at Montrose, said the poor mother, and, strange to say, she said it in a commonplace way, just as any woman might speak of procuring her child's likeness. Day, he was angry. He said it was a waste of money. That's why I give it to you. A fierce cunning look flitted again across her face for a moment. Don't let him see it, she whispered. Day, he is a bad father. He don't care for the children or me. That's why I've put her in the water. She made this last statement concerning her husband and child with a nonchalant air, like one too much accustomed to the facts to be distressed at them. For a few minutes, it seemed that she relapsed into a state of dullness, neither thought nor feeling stirring within her. Caius, supposing that she had nothing more to say, still watched her intently because the evidence of disease were interesting to him. When he least expected it, she awoke again into eagerness. She put her elbows on the table and leaned towards him. There's something I want you to do, she whispered. I can't do it any more. I'm dying. Since I begin dying, I can't get into the water to look for her. My baby is in the water, you know. I put her in. She isn't dead, but she's there, only I can't find her. Day told me that once you got into the water to look for her too, but you gave it up too easy, and no one else has ever so much as got in to help me find her. The last part of the speech was spoken in a dreary monotone. She stopped with a heartbroken sigh that expressed hopeless loneliness in this mad quest. The baby is dead, he said gently. She answered him with eager, excited voice. No, she isn't. That's where you're wrong. You put it on the stone that she was dead. When I came out of the asylum, I went to look at the stone, and I laughed. But I liked you to make the stone. That's why I like you, because nobody else put up a stone for her. Caius laid a cool hand on the feverish one she was now brandishing at him. You are dying, you say, pityingly. It is better for you to think that your baby is dead, for when you die you will go to her. The woman laughed, not harshly, but happily. She isn't dead. She came back to me once. She was grown a big girl and had a wedding ring on her hand. Who do you think she was married to? I thought perhaps it was you. The repetition of this old question came from her lips so suddenly that Caius dropped her hand and stepped back a pace. He felt his heart beating. Was it a good omen? There have been cases where a half-crazed brain has been known, by chance or otherwise, to foretell the future. The question that was now for the second time repeated to him seemed to his hope like an instance of this second sight, only half understood by the eye that saw it. It was not your little daughter that came back, Mrs. Day. It was her cousin, who was very like her, and she came to help you when you were ill, and to be a daughter to you. 
she looked at him darkly as if the saner powers of her mind were struggling to understand but in a minute the monomania had again possession of her she had beautiful hair she said i stroked it with my hand it curled just as it used to do you think i don't know my own child but she had grown quite big and her ring was made of gold i would like to see her again now before i die very wistfully she spoke of the beauty and kindness of the girl whose visit had cheered her the poor crazed heart was full of longing for the one presence that could give her any comfort this sight of death i thought i'd never see her again she fixed her dark eyes on caius as she spoke I was going to ask you, after I was dead and couldn't look for her any more, if you'd keep on looking for her in the sea till you found her. But I wish you'd go now and see if you couldn't fetch her before I die. Yes, I will go, answered Caius suddenly. The strong determination of his quick assent seemed to surprise even her, in whose mind there could be no rational cause for surprise. Do you mean it? Yes, I mean it. I will go, Mrs. Day. A moment more she paused, as if for time for full belief in his promise to dawn upon her, and then, instead of letting him go, she rose up quickly with mysterious looks and gestures. Her words were whispered, "'Come, then, and I'll show you the way. Come, you mustn't tell Day. Day doesn't know anything about it.' She had led him back to the door of the house and gone out before him. "'Come, I'll show you the way. Hush, don't talk, or someone might hear us. Walk close to the barn, and no one will see.' I never showed anyone before but her when she came to me wearing the gold ring. What are you so slow for? Come, I'll show you the way to look for her. Impelled by curiosity and the fear of increasing her excitement if he refused, Caius followed her down the side of the open yard in which he had once seen her stand in fierce quarrel with her husband. It had seemed a dreary place then, when the three children swung on the gate and neither the shadow of death nor madness hung over it. It seemed far more desolate now, in spite of the bright summer sunlight. The barns and stable, as they swiftly passed them, looked much neglected, and there was not about the whole farmstead another man or woman to be seen. As the mad woman went swiftly in front of him, Caius remembered, perhaps for the first time in all these years, that after her husband had struck her upon that night, she had gone up to the cowshed that was nearest the sea, and that afterwards he had met her at the door of the root house that was in the bank of the chine. It was thither she went now, opening the door of the cowshed and leading him through it to a door at the other end, and down a path to the cellar cut in the bank. The cellar had apparently been very little used. The path to it was well beaten, but Caius observed that it ran past the cellar down the chine to a landing where Dane now kept a flat-bottomed boat. They stood on this path before the heavy door of the cellar. Rust had eaten into the iron latch and the padlock that secured it, but the woman produced a key and opened the ring of the lock and took him into a chamber about twelve feet square in which props of decaying beams held up the earth of the walls and roof the place was cold smelling strongly of damp earth and decaying roots but so far there was nothing remarkable to be seen just such a cellar was used on his father's farm to keep stores of potatoes and turnips in when the frost of winter made its way through all the wooden barns in three corners remains of such root stores were lying in the fourth the corner behind the door nearest the sea some boards were laid on the floor and on them flower pots containing stalks of withered plants and bulbs that had never sprouted they're mine she said day durstn't touch them and saying this she fell to work with eager feverishness removing the pots and boards when she had done so it was revealed that the earth under the boards had broken through into another cellar or cave in which some light could be seen I always heard the sea when I was in this place, 
and one day I broke through this hole. The man that first had the farm made it, I suppose, to pitch his seaweed into from the shore. She let her long figure down through the hole easily enough, for there were places to set the feet on, and landed on a heap of earth and dried weed. When Caius had dropped down into the second chamber, he saw that it had evidently been used for just the purpose she had mentioned. The seaweed gathered from the beach after storms was in common use for enriching the fields, and someone in a past generation had apparently dug this cave in the soft rock and clay of the cliff. It was at a height above the sea line at which the seaweed could be conveniently pitched into it from a cart on the shore below. Some three or four feet of dry, rotten seaweed formed its carpet. The aperture towards the sea was almost entirely overgrown with such grass and weeds as grew on the bluff. It was evident that in the original cutting there had been an opening also sideways into the chine, which had caved in and been grown over. The cellar above had, no doubt, been made by someone who was not aware of the existence of this former place. To Caius, the secret chamber was enchanted ground. He stepped to its window, framed in waving grasses, and saw the high tide lapping just a little way below. It was into this place of safety that Josephine had crept when she had disappeared from his view before he could mount the cliff to see whither she went. She had often stood where he now stood, half afraid, half audacious, in that curious dress of hers, before she summoned up the courage to slip into the sea for daylight or moonlight wanderings. He turned round to hear the gaunt woman beside him again talking excitedly. Upon a bit of rusty iron that still held its place on the wall hung what he had taken to be a heap of sacking. She took this down now and displayed it with a cunning look. I made it myself, she said. It holds one up wonderful in the water. But now I've been a-dying so long the buoys have burst. Caius pityingly took the garment from her. Her mad grief and another woman's madcap pleasure made it a sacred thing. His extreme curiosity found satisfaction in discovering that the coarse foundation was covered with a curious broidery of such small floats as might, with untiring industry, be collected in a farmhouse. Corks and small pieces of wood with holes bored through them were fastened at regular intervals, not without some attempt at pattern, and between them the bladders of small animals, prepared as fishermen prepare them for their nets. Larger specimens of the same kind were concealed inside the neck of the huge sack, but on the outside everything was comparatively small, and it seemed as if the hands that had worked it so elaborately had been directed by a brain in which familiarity with patchwork and other homely forms of the sewing woman's art had been confused with an adequate idea of the rough use for which the garment was needed. Some knowledge of the skill with which fishermen prepare their floats had also evidently been hers, for the whole outside of the garment was smeared or painted with a brownish substance that had preserved it to a wonderful extent from the ravages of moisture and salt. It was torn now, or, rather, it seemed that it had been cut from top to bottom, but, besides this one great rent, it was in a rotten condition, ready to fall to pieces, and, as the dying woman had said, many of the air-blown floats had burst. Caius was wondering whether the occasion on which this curious bathing dress had been torn was that in which he, by pursuing Josephine, had forced her to cease pushing herself about in shallow water and take to more ordinary swimming. He looked around and saw the one other implement which had been necessary to complete the strange outfit. It, too, was a thing of ordinary appearance and use, a long pole or poker with a handle at one end and a small flat bar at the other, 
a thing used for arranging the fire in the deep brick ovens that were still in use in the older farmsteads. It was about six feet long. The woman, seeing his attention directed to it, took it eagerly and showed how it might be used, drawing him with her to the aperture over the shore and pointing out eagerly the landmarks by which she knew how far the shallow water extended at certain times of the tide. Her topographical knowledge of all the sea's bed within about a mile of the high-water mark was extraordinarily minute, and Caius listened to the information she poured upon him, only now beginning to realize that she expected him to wear the dress and take the iron pole and slip from the old cellar into the tide when it rose high enough, and from thence bring back the girl with the soft curls and the golden ring. It was one of those moments in which laughter and tears meet, but there was a glamour of such strange fantasy over the scene that Caius felt, not so much its humour or its pathos, as its fairy-like unreality, and that which gave him the sense of unreality was that to his companion it was intensely real. You said you would go. Some perception of his hesitation must have come to her. Her words were strong with insistence and wistful with reproach. You said you would go and fetch her into me before I die. Then Caius put back the dress she held on the rusty peg where it, it had hung for so long. I am a man, he said. I can swim without life preservers. I will go and try to bring the girl back to you, but not now, not from here. It will take me a week to go and come, for I know that she lives far away in the middle of the deep gulf. Come back to the house and take care of yourself, so that you may live until she comes. You may trust me. I will certainly bring her to you if she's alive and if she can come. With these promises and protestations, he prevailed upon the poor woman to return with him to her lonely home. Caius had not got far on his road home when he met Day coming from the village. Caius was full of his determination to go for Josephine by the next trip of the small steamer. His excuse was valid. He could paint the interview from which he had just come so that Josephine would be moved by it, would welcome his interference, and come again to nurse her uncle's wife. Thus thinking, he had hurried along, but when he met Day, his knight errantry received a check. "'Your wife ought not to be alone,' he said to Day. "'No, that's true,' the farmer replied drearily. "'But it isn't everybody she'll have in the house with her. "'Your son and daughter are too far away to be sent for?' "'Yes,' briefly. "'They are in the West.' Caius paused a moment, thinking next to introduce the subject which had set all his pulses bounding. Because it was momentous to him, he hesitated, and while he hesitated, the other spoke. There is one relation I've got, the daughter of a brother of mine who died up by the Gaspé Basin. She's on the Magdalens now. I understood that you had had dealings with her. Yes, I was just about to suggest. I was going to say. I wrote to her. She is coming, said Day. End of Book 3, Chapter 12